Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We began our study of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which are seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven different churches. They are, this, these two chapters together make up really kind of the lost epistles of Jesus himself. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 are just over 1,500 words, which is a little bit longer than Titus and Philemon and not much shorter than Philippians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. So these really are a book unto themselves and, and in and of themselves. And as we spoke last week, just kind of beginning to understand what these letters represent and what we are to be learning from these letters, we talked about how these two chapters should represent everything that we are about as a church. They should form the fabric and DNA of us as Christ Bible Church. We asked the question, what is Jesus looking for in a church? What does he want for his church? And when he visits his own church, and he sees them, he does not keep his thoughts private about them. And he describes for us in amazing detail what he feels about his church. We began last week studying the seven different components that every single letter has. Every one of these seven letters has seven similar components. And we split this uh, first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus, in half. So we covered the first four aspects of every specific letter that we see. So number one, we saw the greeting, verse one in chapter two, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write every letter, uh, every one of the seven letters that Jesus writes in chapter two and three has a greeting that looks exactly like that. We talked about the church in Ephesus. We talked about how it is first in this list of seven churches because of its geographical location. We talked about how it's the capital of the Roman province in Asia. It's the greatest city in Asia Minor, the vanity fair of the ancient world. It had the uh, center of worship to the, the goddess Artemis, the fertility goddess, also known by her Latin name Diana, which is in Acts chapter 19. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, a, a mecca of worship and of uh, just an amazing place. Uh, over 250,000 people lived there. Maybe even uh, up to 500,000 people lived in this city. We talked about its pastoral history last week. There were five pastors that the church in Ephesus had over the course of 50 years. They had Apollos, they had Paul, Silas, Timothy, and John. That's a massive lineup of pastors. Also had eight letters in the Bible that were written to it. Uh, Ephesians, obviously. First and second Timothy, because Timothy was pastor of that church at the time. The Gospel of John, written by the pastor of the church uh, in Ephesus. First, second, and third John, and then obviously Revelation as well. So we started with the greeting. Every letter has a greeting. Secondly, every letter has a description of Jesus, and every description of Jesus goes back to the description of Christ that we saw in chapter 1, but there's a relevant description of what Jesus knows about that church and who Jesus is inside of that church. In this one, we see the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. He holds the churches and the pastors of the churches, and he walks among the golden lampstands. He's there in their midst. He knows exactly who they are, what they're doing, how they feel, how their affections are. So we have a declaration of Christ, or description of Christ, rather. And then number three, we have a declaration of what Christ knows. A declaration of what Christ knows. Every letter has a declaration. I know something about you. And in this letter, Jesus says, verse 2, I know your deeds. 
and I know your toil, and I know your perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to, test, to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary. He knows this about them, and he knows this in perfection about them. But it doesn't just stop there with what he knows. We have a greeting. We have a description of Christ. We have a declaration of what Christ knows. He knows their deeds and he knows their doctrine. But number four, it didn't stop there. There's a criticism. He says in verse four, but I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Their doctrinally sound theology, their desire for purity became their idol and pushed away their first love. We talked about how certain kinds of warfare breed certain kinds of casualties. And the warfare that they were engaged in, in being theologically precise, correct, and and attacking other people who were wrong, that led to them being puffed up in their own pride that we are right, we know everything, and they left their first love. They abandoned their first love. They didn't lose it. They left it. It was a deliberate choice. And so while they had doctrine, right doctrine and good deeds, they were missing one enormous component, and that is devotion. They had doctrine and they had deeds, but they were missing devotion to Christ. We ended last week by saying that stellar commitment to the truth but settled indifference to the Savior is loveless orthodoxy. And God says, I have this against you that you've left your first love. So how do we get out of spiritual apathy? We left uh, off there last week by saying, don't abandon your first love. And if you have, Christ gives us three steps to get back, to return. And that's where we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 5. Let's read verses 5 through the end of verse 7. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts this morning something that is impossible on our own. God, we want the impossible. We want the supernatural to take place in our hearts. We want transformation. We want to love Jesus. And there are places in our hearts where we do not, and we want to see that this morning for what it truly is, sin, to be rejected, to be repented of, to turn away from and to turn to the Savior. So, Father, give us great grace. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to build wonderful things from your law this morning. Enable us to see Christ, to turn to him and to love him more than anything in this world. We pray in his name. Amen.
under the criticism section. So we're just going to pick it back up where we left off last week. So we've got the first four. We have a greeting. We have a description of Christ. We have a declaration of what Christ knows. We have the criticism. So under that criticism, Jesus also gives us the remedy for spiritual apathy. And he gives us three specific R words in how we are to repent, how we are to turn, what are we to do. And if you have found yourself last week to this week considering maybe my soul is not loving Jesus the way it should. Maybe I do not love Jesus the way I should. Maybe I have abandoned my first love and I need to repent. Please listen to what Jesus says this morning because he gives you an outline format of how you are to walk back to loving Jesus more than anything in the world. Number one, you must remember. Verse five, therefore remember. If you want to love Jesus, if you want to go back to loving Jesus, your first love, your greatest priority, you must remember. Remember what? Remember from where you have fallen. Remember. In Luke chapter 15, with the story of the prodigal son, this is where the prodigal son begins his journey of repentance. Remember, he's in the pigsty. He's trying to eat what they are eating, but he can't because his stomach literally cannot digest what they are eating. And as he's sitting there, he's lost all of his money, he's lost all of his friends, he's even lost all of his food now. He remembers how kind his father was. How many of my father's hired servants never go without eating? He's so kind to them, he's so generous to them. And that remembering of where he had fallen leads him to get up, to come to his right mind, and to walk the road back to his father. Remember from where you have fallen. Can I just ask the question? If you're here this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, can you look back on your life and remember a time, I'm going to use a very youth campy word here, but remember a time when you were on fire for the Lord? Can you remember that time? Jesus is telling us this morning, if you have lost, if you've left, if you've abandoned your first love, just the first thing you want to do is remember. Before you do anything else, remember from where you have fallen. Let's, let's remember together. What a perfect verse to study as we're even thinking about our six-year anniversary as a church. Let's remember why we're even here. When I was 16 years old, uh, my life completely changed. Um, I, I, I believe that if I had died between the age of 7 and the age of 16, I think that I was saved. I don't know. <laughs> I know now 16 was when God gripped my heart. Some people would call that a fresh awakening to who God is. Some people would call it uh, just a, an unfolding of what the gospel is. Uh, an understanding. Jonathan Edwards talks a lot about how as a young person you understand the gospel, you believe the gospel, but then there's an awakening. He calls it a gospel wakefulness that you can understand the gospel and it just hits you and it's a deeper understanding of the gospel. That happened for me when I was 16 years old. And I remember my life changed overnight. And what I used to love, I loved baseball. I wanted to be a rock star. I loved the things of this world. I loved money, even though I didn't have it. How is that possible? <laughs> I loved fame and notoriety. 
And overnight, God gripped my heart and said, those things don't matter. I do. And everything in my life changed. I remember I started sharing the gospel with anything that moved. Even if it didn't move, I'd practice on it. Just the fire hydrant, here, here's Jesus. You need to know. I started talking to to people about Jesus. Um, Went on missions trips. There was no such thing as being tired when I was on a missions trip. I just, who cares what hour of the day it is? I'm up because I want to tell people about Jesus. I would go outside. We'd, we'd have winter camps and summer camps. I'd go outside, I'd look at the stars, and I'd just start crying for who knows what reason. Because I'm staring at God, and I feel this big, and God feels so massively important. And I'm undone that he would even know that I exist, would even care about me, and would love me enough to send Jesus Christ to save me. Brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, you need to go back to when you were on fire for him. Remember that love that you had for him. And then ask the question, what's changed? What's changed? Time. Time has changed. Uh, Maybe... It's just been a long time since you've had a, a deep, thriving relationship with Jesus. Maybe the chaos of this world, maybe spiritual hardships, maybe uh, difficult relationships have taken your mind off of Christ and onto the mess that's around you. Maybe you have expectations that you thought were going to happen, and they didn't happen. And now you're kind of blaming the God that you used to just be enthralled with, and mm, he's okay and we need him for salvation, but you don't love him the way you used to love him. Remember, go back. Do you remember the days when the cross meant everything to you? Do you remember the days when you couldn't even go to church on a Sunday and make it through the whole service without weeping, knowing that as you're singing to the God of the universe, he hears you and he loves you because of Jesus. This passage says, number one, if you want to get back to where your first love is and love Christ more than anything, you have to remember Remember that. The second thing is, then repent. Verse 5, remember from where you have fallen, and then secondly, repent. Once you remember, you can see, oh, I have gone a long distance away from loving Christ. Repent. Repent. Just turn from where you are now and move towards something else. Repentance, metanoia, it's a change in your thinking which leads to a change in your living Notice that Jesus does not say, wait around until something moves you. Wait around until you feel something. No, the answer is not to sit around and wait and hope that you'll feel something again. Lovelessness for Jesus Christ is a sin. Sin is to be repented of. So turn from it. Declare it for what it is. It is sin. I need to love Jesus and I don't. Turn from it. And brothers and sisters, in your turning, Jesus will meet you there. In your turning, as you remember, oh, I remember how I loved Christ. And in your repentance and in your turning to him, he will meet you there. Don't wait for feelings to happen. Don't wait for certain things to change in your life. Turn. Turn now. That's why he says you've fallen. You've fallen in sin. It's a fall. You're disobeying Uh, The first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're not obeying that command. 
Spiritual life, spiritual affections ebb and flow, yes, but it is a sin to lack love for Jesus. And so we must repent. Remember, repent. Just like Martin Luther said, the entirety of the Christian life is repentance. Always repenting. And the highest and greatest sin that we should always be repenting of every day is not loving Jesus the way that he deserves to be loved. Remember, repent, and then number three, resume. Remember, repent. My Bible says, do the deeds you did at first. Let's just say, resume what you were doing. Do what you did at first. What did you do? Remember what you were doing. What did we do when we just were absolutely in love with who Jesus is and who all that he is for us? We could not get enough of this book. We could not get enough of this. Hours and hours a day just pouring over this. God, show me Christ. We could not get enough of this. We could not get enough of books about Jesus. We could not get enough about worship songs that were uh, praising and exalting Christ. We could not get enough of him. And now this has become something that we just check off. We did it. We read it this morning. What about prayer? What about praying? Deep, heartfelt, crying out, pleading with God. What about fellowship? Remember what you did at first. Remember all of the friends that you would gather around you that would encourage you? How amazing is Jesus? And you'd go, yes, amen, amen. What has he done in your life? And you share testimonies of what God's doing, and that just grows your affections for Jesus. If you are struggling with a love for Christ, I would just encourage you to get around somebody who does love Jesus and just say, why do you love him? Tell me why he's worthy of your love. Tell me why you love him. Repent and then resume. Return. Go back to the reading uh, of Scripture, the way you used to read, singing the way you used to sing, serving the way you used to serve. How, when, when I turned 16 and God gripped my heart, whenever the church was open, I was there. I mean, I tried to petition to get into the women's meetings because I just wanted to be there for Bible study. I went to a five o'clock meeting on Tuesday mornings for elders and uh, very, very, very old people that were married. And I'm a 16-year-old boy and I'm there and they're just all talking about marriage and all these different things. And I'm going, I don't understand any of this, but I want to love Jesus more. I was there late at night. I was there helping to do whatever I could. I I would go to uh, the church that I was a part of had um, an, an Indian Uh, church service. I would go run sound for the Indian church service, and they're speaking in a different language, but I'm just watching these people loving Jesus and singing to Jesus, and I'm going, they love him. I don't even know what they're saying about him, but they love him. And then you grow up, and life happens, and the question becomes, how much do I have to do church-wide? Like, do I have to Do I have to go to Sunday school? Do I have to go to midweek? If I go to the worship service, I'm covered, right? My bases are covered. How far we have fallen. If you want to grow a love for Jesus, whenever these doors are open, you should be here saying, God, show me. I want to love you more. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, and I might be uh, miscommunicating it. I am not saying that this means we give up our commitment on doctrine. This is not giving up your commitment on doctrine. This is not a little bit less doctrine and a little bit more devotion. Mature Christianity is not 50% doctrine and 50% devotion. 
Mature Christianity is 100% of both. The alternative to loveless orthodoxy is not sentimental ignorance. I'm not asking for sentimental ignorance. It is theologically sound, truth-driven, doctrinally informed devotion. An informed mind and an inflamed heart. A radical commitment to the truth that expresses itself in a radical affection for the Savior. Remember, repent, resume. Remember, repent, resume. What happens if we don't do that? This enters number five. Uh, if you go back to the list, we have the greeting, number one, the description of Christ, number two, declaration of what we know, number three, criticism, number four, and now number five, the warning. Every text is going to, every letter except for two, one of them kind of does, but another one doesn't, has a warning. Here's the warning, verse five. Do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Jesus is saying, you have two options. You can either reform or you will be removed. Those are your only two options. You either get that love back for Christ or you will be removed. And he says, your lampstand will be taken away. All Jesus has to do as the owner of this lampstand is go, and it's gone, snuffed out. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22 says just this. If you do not love the Lord, you are going to be accursed. There's a warning, but I want you to hear inside of the warning that there is grace. There is amazing grace inside of this warning. The very fact that God says to the church, you must repent or else I'm coming, says he's giving them more time to repent. He loves them. He does not want to snuff them out. He wants to be in the relationship with them. And so he says, I'm going to give you time. Please repent. He does not say, it's over now. He says, I'm giving you time. Verse 6, he also says this, yet you do have this. So he goes back to saying what he knows. You could, you could put this under the, de- the description or the declaration of what Christ knows. He knows about their hatred for the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He says, yet this you do have. So there is something again that Jesus is saying, and I think it's helpful even to see in context. He does not say, you need to love me more and stop with the doctrine. He says, you need to love me more, and I'm, I'm excited for the doctrine that you have. It's good that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So he's not saying one over the other. He says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That tells me three things. Number one, that tells me that these people can have affections because they have hatred, right? They can love if they can hate. So they can love. So they have affections. Number two, it tells me what they are hating. They don't hate the Nicolaitans. They're hating their deeds and they're praying for the Nicolaitans. They're wanting the Nicolaitans to repent. And they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but not the Nicolaitans themselves. But number three, it tells me, you just have to write down because we're going to run out of time. Acts chapter 6, verse 5. In Acts chapter 6, when the church is seeking to find leaders to serve in its community. These are the first deacons, the list of deacons that we have in the Bible, Acts chapter 6. One of those deacons that's chosen, a man filled with the Spirit, is a man by the name of uh, Nicholas. Nicholas is where the Nicolaitans come from. So this tells me, this little verse tells me, number one, the Ephesian church can feel 
because it hates, it has affections. Number two, it tells me that they hate deeds, not the people. But number three, it tells me, even it's an example in and of itself, that the Nicolaitans, followers of Nicholas, Nicholas was a man of God, he loved Jesus, he served the church, and then one generation removed, we have this group that starts forming called the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans took what Nicholas said and ran it a mile into heresy. And the main heresy of the Nicolaitans was, in order to be saved, you do not have to repent of sin. You can look just like the world, live it up in sin, especially in Ephesus. Remember this temple to Diana was a temple filled with temple prostitution and sexual immorality. And the Nicolaitan says, yeah, you can worship God that way. That's totally fine. So you can love Jesus and love sin at the exact same time. No problem. Don't need to repent. And Jesus says, you hate those deeds, which I also hate. That's good that you hate them. That's not true Christianity. What a, what a lesson in and of itself that the generation removed from Nicholas would twist what he said, would take it. Nicholas was a godly man, but they took what he said and they ran it in a completely different direction that turned into heresy. What, what will CBC look like in a generation? May God in His grace keep us from heresy. So there's a, a warning, and in the, in the warning we have yet another description of what Christ knows, a declaration in verse 6 of what Christ knows. Verse number 7, we have point number 6 on our sevenfold outline. We have the exhortation. We have the exhortation, which is always, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the same kind of language that's used in Matthew 13 when Jesus is referring uh, to speaking in parables. He's referred to as speaking in parables, and he says, if you have an ear, let, let the one who has an ear, let him hear. Meaning, there's something inside of what Jesus is saying that you have to press into. You can't just hear it and go, hey, I've got that. No, stop, linger, listen up, open your ears, and press into what Christ is saying. That's the exhortation. And finally, number seven on our outline, the promise. It is in verse seven, the back half of verse seven. To him who overcomes. Every one of these seven letters has a promise to the overcomer. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The promise is to the overcomer. That word overcome, uh, the, the one who overcomes, that word is in the Greek, uh, Nico, which is where we get our uh, company, Nike. Uh, that word Nike just means to, to overcome, to win. This is somebody who is the victor. This is terminology that was coming from Olympic kind of games where somebody wins, they are the overcomer, they are the, the Nico. They have defeated everybody else and they win the prize. And so here, Jesus says, there is a prize, a promise that will be given to the one who is the victor. Remember we talked last week about how beautiful this is. Jesus says, there's a warning, repent or else, but there's a promise, repent and I will give you something. There's a blessing that's promised. And again, we see great grace in verse 7. The fact that the overcomer is even mentioned here is encouraging because it tells us that it's possible to overcome. You can repent. You can turn back. If you have fallen and have left your first love, this verse tells us it's possible to regain that love again. But what do they need to overcome? They need to overcome loveless orthodoxy with a persistent, lifelong devotion to Jesus. They need to, 
in the words that we used earlier, remember, repent, and resume. And what will they get? What's the promise? I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is unlimited access to God. What will this overcomer get? They will get unlimited access to God. The tree of life had been guarded in Genesis 3, an angel with a flaming sword swirling around all over the garden. But to the one who overcomes, that guard is removed and you have unlimited access to God forever. And there's one thing, I know this gets a little bit technical and you'll just have to take my word for it because the Greek is very specific here. There's a way in which you can write the paradise of God for it to mean several different things. And the meaning here, because of the specific technicality of the Greek, is the paradise not owned by God. That's one way you can say it in the Greek. This is the paradise which is God himself. So what this verse is saying is you will be able to eat from the tree of life in paradise, which is God himself getting God for all of eternity, which is all you've ever wanted. If you love Jesus, you're going to get to have him forever. That's the promise. If you love me, if you overcome, if you remember, repent, and resume, and you turn back and you love me, you'll be able to get me forever. If you don't remember, repent, and resume, and you don't love me, you're not going to be able to get me forever. This is the question that I wrestle a lot with my own students at Heritage. I ask them the question, why would you even want to go to heaven if you are not a believer? If you don't love Jesus more than anything in this world, I don't think you're going to like heaven. Because heaven is all about Jesus. And if you don't love Jesus more than anything in this world, then what you love more than anything in this world is some form of sin. And if you love sin more than anything in this world, you would not like heaven because heaven is a place where the very thing that you love more than anything in this world doesn't even exist. It's all about, do you love Jesus? And Jesus says, if you fight for love for me and you overcome, you're going to get all of me forever. That's the beautiful irony over this whole issue. If you get back your first love, you overcome, you get God. You get what satisfies you the most forever. And if you return, you will live forever. And you'll want to. You'll want to be with him forever. Adam and Eve ate from this tree of life, but then because of their sin, they were removed from the garden. Jesus here in this amazing letter invites you and me to go back to paradise, regain what Adam and Eve lost in a place where intimacy with Christ will never be compromised ever again. That's what we get. So, how do we wrap up this first letter? I have to ask two questions, just really simply. Question number one, what happened to this church? And question number two, what's going to happen to us? Question number one is really easy. What happened to this church? Did they overcome? The answer is no. Uh, Ephesus was ultimately taken over by the Arabs, and the church of St. John was transformed into a mosque. The huge port, it was a seaside city, the huge port, the center of uh, commerce is buried even today underneath sand and silt. And the sea is actually now six miles further out than in the book of Revelation. So this entire place, this location has been completely snuffed out. And so too the sand of waning love has covered and consumed the church in Ephesus and destroyed it from the inside out. What happened to them? Jesus gave them time. He pleaded with them to repent 
And when they did not, his warning to them in verse 5, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, happened. At one point in time, he just took the lamp, pulled it out of the lampstand, and went and threw it away. So what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to CBC? Jesus is saying these words to CBC this morning. What would he say to you individually that he has against you? What would he say to you individually that he loves about what you're doing? We talked about this last week, those three Ds. Do we have deeds for Christ? Do we have doctrine that is theologically sound? And do we have devotion to him? There are two out of the seven churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation 2 and 3 that are condemned for not having devotion, not loving Jesus. What about us? What would Jesus say to us? Maybe you're here this morning and you try to remember when you did have a love for Jesus and you realize, I don't think I've ever had a love to return to. When Jesus says, remember, repent, and resume, I don't have a love to remember. I don't have a love to turn back to. I've never loved Jesus. I've known about him, but I don't love him. Then can I just plead with you, dear friend, today is the day to understand why he is worthy of your love and affection, to turn to him, to turn from what you love the most, which is sin in some form. Ultimately, it's a love for yourself and to say, I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I follow Christ. But maybe you're here this morning and you do have a love to turn back to. You remember a love for Christ. Somehow, some way, you've become like the church in Ephesus. Maybe you, you love the deeds. You love to work. And you love to work hard for Christ. But you've forgotten the love that motivated it at one time. Sanctification is seen in good works, yes, but good works don't produce sanctification. Good works are the result of the Spirit's work in you. Simply choosing to do good works does not mean that you can force the Spirit's hand in your life. Simply saying, I'm going to do good works and therefore love will follow. No, no, no. You remember Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not primarily about commandment keeping. It's primarily about love. What's the nature of this love? What's the nature of the love that you and I need to have? Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 is so clear. Jesus said, that you cannot love father or mother or children more than you love me if you're going to follow me. We can unpack that verse. We don't have time for it today. But just very simply, how do you love your children? You don't love your children by doing what they tell you to do. We've turned our relationship with Jesus into just, I'll do what, love means I do what he tells me to do. Yes, but no, go deeper. How do you love your children? If you have children, how do you love your children? You just stare at them you're just blown away by how adorable they are, right? Like this morning in Sunday school, I, I think I heard half of what Sergio was saying because I was just staring at Tyler trying to draw on this little whiteboard. It was terrible, but it was so adorable. He doesn't have to do anything. Our relationship is literally me just going, wow. And those of you, those of you who are parents, you know that feeling when there's a part in your heart that you never knew existed and it just opens up and you just love this little individual. And you're blown away by how much you love them. They don't have to do anything. You just love them. You're in awe of them. You're blown away by them. That's what Jesus says. He compares the love, right? You can't love father, mother, children more than you love me. What kind of love are we talking about? Just staring at Jesus and being in awe of who he is. 
Yes, it will work itself out in deeds, for sure, but deeds divorced from devotion will turn into legalism, and Jesus will snuff out that lampstand. Finally, we have to ask the question, we'll end here, where does this love come from? How do we get it? Turn to Luke chapter 7, we'll end here. Luke chapter 7, where do we get this love? We understand the nature of this love, we understand we need to fight for this love, but where does this love ultimately foundationally come from? Luke chapter 7, verse 36, the Pharisees just, uh, you know the story, verses 36 through 39, the Pharisees are talking to Jesus and this woman comes with the vial of perfume and begins to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet, anointing them with the perfume. And the Pharisees say, how dare she do this? Uh, Verse 39, middle of the verse, if this man, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him, a prostitute, a sinner. And Jesus answered and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. He said, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint me, my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven because she loved much. She was loved much and therefore she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You can absolutely see how the Ephesian church got to where they are. They got puffed up over time. They knew that their doctrine was sound. We know what heresy is and we reject it. And as they got puffed up, their understanding of the grace of God was diminished. We're pretty awesome. And yes, Jesus died for us, but we're pretty cool without his love for us. We, we know we need Jesus to save us, but we're also awesome. If you've lost your love for Christ, You need to go back to where the love begins. This love that Jesus is asking us to return back to, it comes from being stunned by the love of God for you. That's where this love comes from, being overwhelmed by him. And when that grips you, that Jesus would love even me, a sinner and a wretch like me. He who has been loved much, loves much. So we'll let Charles Spurgeon conclude our time. Are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you, for it is a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing this is, little love for our own dying Savior, little joy in our precious Jesus, little fellowship with the Beloved. Hold true remorse in your soul while you sorrow over your hardness of heart, but do not stop at sorrow. Remember where you first received salvation and return at once. Go at once to the cross. There and only there can you wake up in your spirit, no matter how hard, no matter how insensible, no matter how dead you may have become. Let's go again. Yes, let's go again. In all the rags and poverty and depravity of our natural condition, let's clasp that cross 
Let's look into those eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with love. This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith. And this will revive the tenderness of our heart. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Father, we are blown away that a dying Savior would give his life a ransom for many. We want to be stunned by that reality. God, have we become too complacent, too familiar with the cross? May that never be. God, I... I, I pray that we would cry out to you right now. Revive us as we dwell at the foot of the cross. God, I pray that you would enable us this day to remember, repent, and resume and have great conversations that would dialogue about the grace of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name for his glory. Amen.